what are the names that you call yourself? What are the names that you call yourself? And I don't mean your, your name name or some title. I mean the stories that you tell about yourselves. You have a narrative inside your own mind that says, this is who I am. What are the names that you call yourself? This is basically who you think you are. Usually we build our, our kind of who we think we are on our past, things that we've experienced, or the things we've done, or honestly, even the things that have been done to us. They define us, right? Sometimes we just look at our nature. This is who I am. This is what I'm like. And we can do this both positively and negatively. Positively, you might say, if you're thinking about the names you call yourself, the stories you tell, I'm a people person, or I'm a tech guy, or I'm a mom, or because of the way you've been perceived by others, you say, oh, I'm intelligent, or I'm attractive, or I'm whatever. But we also have negative stories and names we call ourselves too. Coward, loner, failure, unworthy. Or the things that have happened in our life or even been done to us and the things we feel guilt and shame about. I'm just an addict. I'm an adulterer. I'm a victim. Or I've done something to somebody. We live in this constant wrestling as human beings with guilt, shame, and fear. Guilt, shame, and fear are constantly playing into these stories and names we tell about ourselves. What are the names that you call yourself? What are the stories you say about who you are? What I'm talking about is actually the issue of our day. And when I say of our day, I don't mean 2022. I don't even mean the 2020s. I mean for the past 50 years and honestly for the next 100, maybe 200. It's the idea or the concept of anthropology. This is the issue of the modern world that we live in and that we're going to live in the rest of our lives. And anthropology means this. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Does how we are born matter? Does our physical, do our physical bodies matter? What is the reason why we have, say, rights or try to protect rights for other people or freedom? Like, what's the basis of that? What is the value of a human life? Does our gender matter? Does our sexuality matter? Do we matter? And this is summed up in the term that is the kind of term of the day, and you'll hear me say it again and again, identity. Identity, what does it mean to be human? And what I'm going to tell you is, the reason why I talk about this a lot is because I, you get me like three out of four Sundays, 40, 30 minutes a, a week, but the whole rest of the week, you don't get me, so you're not getting good stuff, right? No. You're, you and I are being schooled and discipled constantly by the things we do. The things we do do something to us. They shape our loves and our desires. So whether it is TikTok or Twitter or cable news, whether it's talking with friends or going on a, a run with people or with the people we're around, the places we work, the things we're consuming are shaping us. They're shaping what we think is true, our perception of reality. And so today, it is axiomatic, meaning it is believed to be true and no one can defend it or, or fight against it. It is believed to be true that you need to find yourself. 
And that means becoming your authentic self. And at its root, it's do what you want and be happy. Find yourself, do what you want, and be happy. Jesus, of course, flips that one upside down. He doesn't say find yourself. He says be found by me. Be found by me and then become who you are, who you were made to be, who you will one day be in eternity. Follow me and have life to the full. May not be happy always, but life to the full. Jesus did not come to bring about a new religious system. Hey, switch from going to synagogues to going to churches. He came about to usher in the kingdom of God, which is the new creation, God entering into the creation and restoring it to its eternal purposes. And everywhere Jesus goes, the kingdom of God is unfolding and new creation is breaking in. And he doesn't just want to break in the creation, he wants to break into us. He wants to transform us into the image of God to be the people we are intended to be. In John chapter 9, Jesus finds a man, a man whose life was absolutely hopeless, and he heals him. He heals all of him. So let's look at that passage, John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, in verse 1 and 2, we read, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? So this is just after the section that Matt preached on last week, John 7 and 8, where Jesus talks about being the, the, from him springs of living water will come, and then he goes on to say in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. It carries on from there. He, they pass by. The disciples ask a rabbinic question. Here's a guy who's blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents? So that sounds like an absurd question to us, but it was a common first century Jewish understanding of suffering, that suffering was caused by sin. This man was born blind, somebody sinned, who was it? Who was it that sinned that caused this man to be born blind? Now, we think that is absurd, and yet, while we don't try to attribute, like, you know, bad stuff to people that, that often, we do the opposite. We, we don't say suffering is caused by sin, always, but the good stuff in our life, it's caused by us. We have the same theology, we just put a positive spin on it. Like, the reason why your bank account's good is because you worked really hard, you went to school, you've kept your jobs, you've, done, you've been disciplined with your money. Like, your bank account's full because you're a good person. Other people's bank accounts are not because they're fools or they didn't work hard. We think it's causal. Jesus says, no, it's the wrong way to think about it at all. And Christianity does that as well. Christianity has understood that this is a fallen and broken world. So everything from cancer to the evils perpetrated to earthquakes and volcanoes are part of a fallen and broken world that is constantly tremoring, including our own lives and bodies, where we do things that are against what we are made to do. And yes, suffering can be caused by our sin, but that's not the primary way of thinking about it. I mean, look, if you drive 50 miles per hour over the speed limit all the time, you will endure pain and suffering at some point. But Jesus says, that's not what we're going to be talking about here. 
But I think before we jump into some other things that it says, I want us to sit in the man's plight a couple of times. Think about this man that they're passing by. They're just walking by. Here's a guy who's blind from birth. We know from later on he's a beggar. And there he is. And they're having a discussion about him. As a blind man and as a beggar, he was completely helpless and hopeless. In that culture, in that day and age, he had no way of kind of establishing a career. Beggar was his career. Dependent on the kindness of other people just to eat. He lived his whole life in that helplessness. There was no future for him. Nobody was going to marry him. And on top of that, he was an outsider in his own community. The context suggests that they're in Jerusalem, but he is labeled a sinner. And by temple standards, Jewish temple standards, somebody who was blind was unclean. They could not participate in the temple worship. He wouldn't have been able to get close enough to hear what Jesus had said in John 7 and 8, which Matt talked about last week. He could be near a synagogue, maybe participate in a synagogue, but he was an outcast in his own people. And he was unclean, and he was helpless. His life was awful for decades. But Jesus intervenes in his life, doesn't he? He finds him. This man is born blind, that the works of God, verse 3 says, that the works of God might be made known, might be seen, might be revealed. Now, that word works of God is, it basically means God's purposes, okay? It doesn't specifically mean healing the man of physical blindness. And I think what Jesus is getting at is this man is born blind. God wants to show himself through this man. And you know what? That would be true of the man if he was healed physically or not. That's true of us. Every single person who has ever existed and their entire story exists so that the works of God, the purposes of God might be revealed. And so then Jesus goes on in verse 6 and 7 to spit on the ground and make some mud and rub it in the guy's eyes. And so if you think about, think again about the guy, like we just kind of pass over this. He's blind, he's sitting there, a discussion happens, and then he hears, sorry for this sound, but (laughs) and the next thing he knows, somebody has taken something and put it in his face. He didn't see it happening. He he wasn't anticipating it. If while we're out having coffee hour, I just put my hands on your face, just all of a sudden, without any, you're going to be really offended by it and and feel like you've been attacked. Here's a guy blind, somebody shoving mud in his face. He's being assaulted, or they're just mocking him, like everyone did. What do you do when... God does something that you don't expect and maybe even feels painful. Something you don't understand in your life. But then the man, Jesus says, says to the man, now go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam is where they pulled the bucket of water to go do that water ceremony that Matt talked about last week. Go and wash in that pool. And he goes and washes his face in that pool. He does listen to Jesus, and he can see. For the first time in his life, something he was never able to do, something we take for granted, and many of us have like gotten worse vision as time has gone on, 
but he had never seen in his life, and he could see all of a sudden. What is happening here is uh, the theologians and commentators say this is not a restorative act. Many of Jesus' healings were restoring something that somebody had lost. They became lame because of an accident. He heals them. But in this instance, the man had never seen, so it was an act of new creation. And we get this doubled up because in Genesis 2, God forms the man from the earth and then breathes life or spirit into him, and he becomes human. In this instance, Jesus, the God-man, takes mud, puts it on the man, and he goes and washes in a pool that was symbolic of the Spirit of God, and he could see again. The new creation, God's eternal purposes are breaking in into this man's life through Jesus. And then the story gets really interesting. In the rest of John chapter 8, we get some of the best, or John chapter 9, we get some of the best storytelling of John. Go read the Gospel of John um, chapter by chapter out loud. It's amazing. The storytelling here is just fascinating. You get characters with their dialogue. You get this plot line that's tracking out and humor at times. And it's just amazing. And so the first thing that happens is he comes back and his neighbors, people who had seen him his whole life, they see him and they have a debate. Well, wait, isn't isn't that the beggar that was blind? And somebody says, nah, it just looks like him. The guy has been gone for like 15 minutes. He's like, look, guys, I just went down, washed in the pool. I'm wearing the same clothes. It's the same face. It's me. They're like, nah, it's not him. It's the guy who looks like him. 15 minutes, I was, I was just here. I'm a little wet. Did, did you not see any of the? It's me. The whole scene, if you read it out, sounds like a Monty Python sketch. I mean, they're, they're like debating back and forth. And throughout the whole episode, the man born blind who can now see is like the only sane person. No, no, it's me. Well, how can you see? Look, that guy, Jesus, he put mud in my eyes, told me to go wash. I did. I can see. I don't know. So they take him to the Pharisees. This is verses 13 and, and following. They take him to the Pharisees, which is the rabbis. The rabbis ran synagogues. They were the teachers, the Old Testament scholars. Unlike in the temple where you had the priests, there's synagogues around Jerusalem. This would have been one of those synagogues. They bring him to his synagogue. And the rabbis are there, and they, they begin this formal inquiry. They, the, the debate is this. Well, Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, so he must be a sinner. You can't break the law. And somebody else is like, yeah, but he healed the guy. So these rabbis are having a debate. While the guy is standing there, again, it's like he doesn't exist. They're having this debate about what happened. Is the guy who healed him, Jesus, is he a good man or a bad man? He broke the Sabbath. You can't do that. That's bad. But he heals a guy. That's good, right? So they say, well, what do you say to the man? I don't know. Look, this is what he told me to do. I went and washed in the pool. And now I see, I guess he's a prophet, right? It's pretty amazing what he did. Well, they, they, they're trying to find a way out of it. They don't want to attribute this miracle to Jesus. So they're like, maybe he wasn't actually born blind. Maybe he just had like some stuff in his eyes and needed to be washed out. Go call his parents. They call his parents who are part of this community. The parents come before him. Is this your son? And was he born blind? And how does he now see? And they're like, Yes, it's our son. Yes, he was born blind. How he came to see, we don't know. You ask him, he's of age. But really underneath of this is a lot of fear on their part. They are afraid of the religious leaders who do not like Jesus, and they don't want to say something good about Jesus. So they just want to be out of this. They're like, hey, why don't you ask him yourself? He's of age. He's an adult. 
But think again about the pain that this man has gone through, that that was the scenario with his parents. The backstory of this pain, I'm reading a little bit into it, but not that far. If he is a beggar, as an adult, it means he's living apart from his parents. Even somebody who was blind could have been trained in a lot of the, the, the things that they did around a home or an agrarian society. He could have been a part of the economy of the family. But he's begging, which means at some point in his past, he's been booted out. He has no relationship with his parents. The only people who maybe would have taken him in, his parents, kept him with them, his parents. They want nothing to do with him. If the theology of the day is who sinned to cause him to be born blind, this man or his parents, what are the implications if they keep him in their house? What you're saying is it was your sin and you feel guilty. So was he born blind because one of you committed adultery, the woman? Was he born blind because you guys did something evil that hasn't been revealed yet? And the parents know this theology. They get rid of him as soon as they can because they want to say, look, He's the sinner. God cursed him with this blindness. Therefore, we want nothing to do with this unlucky guy. Abandoned by his own parents who simply try to protect themselves. So they turn back, the Pharisees turn back to the man. What did he do? Look, he, the mud, wash, I see. I, I don't know. I was blind but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. I don't know. They say, well, tell us again how it happened. And he's like, okay, I've told you guys like three times what happened. Wait, do you guys want to be his disciple? So what's happening here in this instant is a little bit more humor that's going on. The man is now poking fun of the rabbis, the Pharisees. For the first time in his life, he's being given a voice. He's being asked to testify in a court of law as if he is an adult in the community. And now he's interacting and he's realizing the illogic of their statements and that they are not willing to admit what is clearly obvious. He's pressing in because God has gifted him and called him into this moment for such a purpose as this. And he said, what, do you want to be his disciple too? Then, no, we're disciples of Moses. We follow Moses. We're the Moses team. You, you, you can be a part of this guy, but this guy's a sinner and so are you. The man replies back in verse 32, 33, and he basically teaches the rabbis. We know that no one can do something like this unless God is with him. You guys know that. Basically, he's saying, I've heard you all read the Old Testament, the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. I've heard the teachings. I know this God. God would not do this without somebody who is working on his behalf. This man is from God. Think about it logically, guys. Their verdict is, he's a sinner, and you were born steeped in sin. You are a sinner. And they cast him out. They excommunicate him. And then Jesus finds him again. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. 
He recognized Jesus' voice. Who is this Messiah? It's, it's you. I believe. And he worshiped him. And in that process of worshiping, what he's doing is he is saying, you are my God. I will allow you to define me. Whatever we worship is defining us, even if we're not aware of it. And then Jesus goes on teaching, and it's in that same little section there in verses 39 to 41. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world for those who do not see, that they may see, that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees, so the rabbis are right nearby while all this is happening, the religious leaders. They were near him, and they heard him say these things. They said, well, are we also blind? Are you saying we're blind? Jesus said to them, look, if you were blind, you would have no guilt because you would be willing to admit your need. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You know, the story is this amazing back and forth on this idea of light and darkness in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the light of the world who wants to bring those in darkness into the light. And in this story, we have the man's physical blindness. So at the beginning of the story, the man is blind, the neighbors, the religious leaders, and his parents all physically can see. But as the story unfolds, the man's blindness is pulled away, and now he can see physically like them. And now we get the story told on another level of who can actually see and not see spiritually. And what happens is the neighbors aren't sure and they can't see. His parents don't want to see and the religious leaders refuse to see. And as the story unfolds, you see the man going from Jesus, is, he, he obeys Jesus, and then he says Jesus is a prophet, and then he says, wait a minute, he, he is, he's more than a prophet, he's from God. And then he believes that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, and he worships him. And at the end, the religious leaders are the blind ones. The spiritual guides can't see at all. Jesus goes on in a section that I actually, for some reason, in all my years of studying this stuff, always separated chapter 10 from chapter 9. But in the original scriptures, they wouldn't have had verse numbers and they didn't have chapter divisions. And actually, chapter 9 flows directly into chapter 10. It's part of the same narrative. Jesus basically says in verse 41, he said to the rabbis, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name and leads them out. Who is the thief and the robber? It's the religious leaders. It's not Satan. Religion. And Jesus is saying that he, not the religious leaders, not the rabbis, is the true shepherd of the sheep, going back to King David, the one who is meant to lead and shepherd them. In verse 10 and 11, we have those famous lines where Jesus says, the thief, and again, referring back to the religious leaders, okay? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's not what religious people do. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is taking the man's sight and pushing it a step further and making the contrast. In the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, was known as the shepherd of his people, Israel. Psalm 23 that we recited together is that description of the Lord, Yahweh, as the shepherd of his people who will lead them beside still waters. And even though we go through suffering, the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. And the promise is that he will unfold before us a table, that there is a a time when all the abundance of God will overflow, even if we have to go through the valley of the shadow of death, that he is the one who walks with us, protects us, provides for us, the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the one who protects and provides and leads you. Trust me. And you can trust me because I'm the one who will lay down my life for you because I love you. I love how Jesus is with this man walking through this process as he's being transformed not just from somebody who couldn't see physically to somebody who can see physically. Instead, it's from somebody who was blind spiritually, honestly, to somebody who's the only one who can see spiritually. And in the process, Jesus is making a major transformation in him that is underneath and behind this whole story. And we see a summary of of some of it in verse 3 when it says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name and leads them out. He stopped to call this man by name. I want you to think about that for a little bit. What are the names we open talking about identity and the names we call ourselves, the stories we tell about ourselves? What are the names that he gave to himself, do you think, for the first 35 years of his life, this blind man? What names did he go by? What did others call him? I am a blind man. That was his name. That's my genetics. Physically, this is how I was born. That's what defines me, my blindness. Or his career. I'm a beggar. That's all I am. I'm a kind of leech on society. I'm just a beggar. Or the name that his parents and the Pharisees were giving to him, which is a sinner. Clearly, you sinned. You're a sinner. And that didn't just mean like, hey, you're sinful, like we all are. It meant that you were outside of the covenant community. A Jewish person could not be called a sinner. It was actually what was kept for Gentiles. He was out, sinner, beggar, blind man. Those are the names he gave to himself. But what names does Jesus give him? He's talking to the rabbis with the blind man who's now seeing right next to him. He's talking about my sheep, the lamb of my flock. He has gone from being a blind beggar, an outsider, a sinner, to my sheep, my valued possession, my own child. His name flips because Jesus gives him a new name based on Jesus bringing him into the fold. And I think we actually get another name of him in here, another name that's accidentally said by the rabbis. They're like, are you going to teach us? What does he do in the entire narrative with his neighbors, with the rabbis, even with his parents? He's teaching them. He's the only one who can teach. He's a professor all of a sudden. His logic is brilliant. His understanding of Scripture and God is deep. He's heard all the things, even in his blindness. And now he's empowered to be the teacher that he was meant to be, to refute 
to correct, to teach, to reveal Jesus as the Christ. So which is his false identity and which is his true identity? Hmm? Beggar, blind man, sinner, or sheep of Jesus' flock, a teacher of teachers? Jesus is saying that he calls us by name. And I think there's actually something deeper there. You know, there's a way, according to Scripture, and I think this is one of those places where it gets hinted at, that there's a way that God sees you uniquely, that he has made you uniquely. He sees you and he has made you. And I'm not just talking your physical person, but that's a part of it. But he has made you with an intention. And it's who you are going to be in eternity, who you will be in the new creation. This is your real identity. It's your calling. And out of it, you see your true worth when you live into that. Every other identity we live into is fragile, filled with guilt and shame and fear. It can be your positive identities, like, oh, these are my vocations, this is my career, I'm a good mom, or I'm great at this job, or I'm you know, very talented at this, or I'm, people think I'm beautiful, or I'm really fun, or whatever the positive ones are, if those are the things that are driving your identity, you're going to be constantly afraid, driven to try, to try to get ahead in them, and never sure that you've gotten enough. They're fragile, and that's why we become defensive with one another when we feel like our identity is being threatened. Or if you have a very filled with negativity identity, like a lot of pain, hurt, things you've done, been done to you, you can deal with just defensiveness and hopelessness. We live in a climate of political fear. That that anger, that vitriol, is because both sides are filled with fear. Their identity is being threatened. If your identity is in Christ, nothing can threaten you. If you feel threatened, it is because your identity is not in something that's going to last. What about you? What names do you call yourself? What are the names that the world tells you you are? What are the stories you tell about yourself that Satan in that voice inside your head, constantly plays. Yeah, that's all you are. Remember that. Remember that. Remember that. Today, salvation is go find your own identity and be happy. Jesus says, find me. Be found by me, and I will give you an identity. A true identity. The name that God calls you. You know, each of us in Christ, when you come into Christ, you have a gospel identity, which is kind of the attributes that we can all hold on to, like being a sheep of Jesus' own flock. It's who we are because of Christ and the cross, a lamb of God, a child of God, beloved, my daughter, a son of the king. And we need to hear that again and again because we're constantly being fed lies by ourselves and the world around us that we are not worthy, but our worth is based on what Jesus has done for us. On top of that, each of us has a unique kingdom, new creation identity. Who you uniquely are made to be, to be the person through whom God's purposes are going to be revealed in the world. It's the name that God calls you by. Revelation 2.17 says, he will give you a new name. Your identity forever. From him. And when you live into that identity, the identity that he has for you, you become creative, joyful, 
and filled with wholeness and peace and shalom, and you're fearless because you know you cannot die. Your true identity cannot be threatened. It cannot be lost or stolen. It is yours and it is who you are meant to be for the next trillion years and beyond. How do you know your true identity? Ask Jesus, who do you see me as? What do you call me, Lord? Ask him. Listen in silence. What word or phrase does God use of you? A creator, a leader, a bridge, a peacemaker. It's usually terms that could be describing God himself. We're going to pray, and I'm going to actually invite us into a time of silence, similar to how we did last week, and ask God to reveal to us how he sees us. What word or phrase would he say to you? If it sounds like a bad word or phrase, it's probably not from God. If it sounds like something that might be too good to be true, it's probably him. Just let whatever word or phrase, let your mind kind of go, because God works in our minds, in our hearts, in our emotions. The Spirit is present in this space. So I'm going to pray, leave silence, and then pray, and then we're going to have Mark come up and lead us in the next time of prayers. So let's go to the Lord and ask him to reveal to us our true identity in him. Lord Jesus, you are the great shepherd, the good shepherd. You walk with us and you lead us. We have so many other voices in our head, the world around us, the lies we tell ourselves, the things we try to live into, the things that have been done to us. So by the power of your spirit, drive out all wrong desires and thoughts right now. Clear this space as we are sacred vessels, the Holy Spirit present in each of us. This is a sacred space. This is not just a high school auditorium. It's a sacred space today because your people are gathered. And speak to us, Lord. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, Lord? What word or phrase would you just put in our mind? What image? What story? How does God see you? What is the name that he gives you? Lord Jesus, as you found that blind man and healed him physically and spiritually and eternally, so find us this morning. Speak to us. If you have heard a word or a phrase or an idea, write it down in your phone, a piece of paper. If it sounds too good, like you heard the phrase, you're a good father, 
you are my maker. You are powerful. You are a shepherd. Just hold on to it. And trust that God wants to move in you eternally in that identity. The one he is calling you to live out. God, empower us, your people, to live out our calling and identity as individuals, as families, as a church. And live with fearlessness, boldness, and peace. In your name we pray. Amen.